Thank you. I'll move up to one row there. Come on, Jim. Y'all move up a row. We're trying to get where we can hear when it, when people when uh, Stan pontificates. We want to know hear every word. All right. Well, good morning. Um, before we actually start this, I want to I'm going to give some acknowledgments. Uh, yeah, go ahead and start the recording there, Will. We'll just put this on there too. Um, uh, the lecture today on the authority of Scripture. I'm relying upon my mentors. Uh, in fact, you should just always assume that about almost anything I'm teaching or preaching, as I learned it from somebody else somewhere. And uh, and I'm thankful for all the different people God's put in my life over the years to instruct me, all the books that he's enabled me to read and have access to. You know, I was just telling Nathan, I go back and look at books I read 20, 30 years ago, and I know I read them because it's my handwriting in there. I marked them up, and I look at them and go, I don't remember reading this at all. <laughs> so I've forgotten more than I know. Um, but I want to mention a few books in particular about today's topic. Very influential in my life was R.J. Rushdoony, and this book called By What Standard, uh, which is an exposition of uh, the philosophy, uh, biblical philosophy of Cornelius Van Til, uh, which deals a lot with the doctrine of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. That's the standard. Uh, Greg Bonson's book, By This Standard, so by what standard? By this standard, which is on the authority of God's Word. And by the way, uh, Covenant Media, which is our ministry, publishes this. I have some extra copies at a good price if anybody's interested in that. Um, really good introduction to that, kind of written at a, I call it a college level. The uh, graduate level version of that is Theonomy, which we just republished. This just came out last week. Um, we've had the hardback copy for years, but ran out of those, and this is the first uh, paperback edition. So you see it's a little more hefty. Uh, I have one slightly damaged copy if somebody wants a good price on that. And then another book, uh, by Greg Bonson is called No Other Standards. So by what standard? By this standard and no other standard, which is an answer to critics uh, who had responded to uh, his work. So um, these are, I'll be using some of these materials today uh, along still with uh, uh, other books that I have. So I did want to acknowledge those Cornelius Van Til's uh, Defense of the Faith, uh, one of the volumes, there are several volumes of that, and the one on the Doctrine of Scripture uh, I used as well. Okay, with that said, uh, let's smoke. No, let's, let's pray. Um, Stan, would you pray for us? Father God, we give you thanks for uh, all the blessings you poured out on us. We thank you for this time that we can be together and fellowship and Blessings on our, on our lesson, on our uh, hearts, that you open them to your word, and bless us to our time together with Christ's name. Amen. So remember, the, the fundamental problem we talked about last night is man wants to be God. Man wants to be sufficient in himself. He wants to make decisions. Isn't that the problem with, like, teenagers um, or six-year-olds? I know. Uh, I want to. I want. I think I am sufficient in myself to make all the big decisions in my life, and uh, no matter what age we are, whether we're six or fifteen or sixty-five, we still think that that's our our tendency, and we don't want anybody telling us what to do, and so we tend to push back against authority outside ourselves, and so the unbeliever, though, I want to argue, as we mentioned from Romans one last night does not lack information. God has provided sufficient information through the natural or general revelation and also through his word. But rather, the unbeliever needs to be confronted with what he already knows. The fact is, uh, he is in rebellion against God. So through general or natural revelation, he already knows, uh, as we mentioned last night in Romans 1, that God is the creator. 
And he knows more than that. He knows uh, about his pow- his eternal power, his Godhead. And these things, the Bible says, he clearly sees and he understands them. He's not confused. It's not a lack of uh, God just didn't tell me enough. Why didn't he give me enough information to draw that conclusion? He doesn't want to draw that conclusion because there are implications for him. That means he's under judgment. He's accountable. There's someone over him. He doesn't want to relinquish the throne to someone else. And that's, that's fallen human nature. He supp- therefore, what he does know, he suppresses. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. There's an ethical component here. It's not just that, oh, I'm trying to be open-minded and I just want to weigh all the facts. All I really want to know is the truth. No, I don't want the truth. The truth is oppressive to me. It's threatening to me. And so I will actively suppress it by either playing ignorant or acting like I don't know or acting like it's less than clear. And the Bible says that's not true. And so uh, he resorts to foolish thinking, oftentimes with a Ph.D. in front of it. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is a self-inflicted wound here, a callousness. The Bible says sin, uh, is uh, when it's persisted in, produces a callousness, a blindness, and so they exchange the truth of God for a lie. In fact, we'd, we'd rather believe anything other than what the Bible says about God and about me and about sin. Uh, and so he, what, he, what's, what ends up happening is God's created this glorious world that all testifies of God, and he says, uh, you know what, I'm going to worship it instead of him. Instead of the creator, I'm going to worship the creation. I'm going to worship science. I'm going to worship uh, the physical universe because it is amazing, right? It is powerful. And uh, that is going to become the thing I want to serve. And so we have all kind of manifestations of that. Um, And so he worships the creature rather than the creator. R.J. Rushdoony observed that, quote, to deny God as ultimate means to affirm man as ultimate. Those are the two alternatives. To make nature the container of God is finally to make man God's container. Um, we want to, we'll let God exist as long as we can define him, as long as we can manage him and control him and say what he can and can't do. And so from the beginning, man has wanted to be his own God, to be his own authority. This is the original sin of man, the lust to be as God. And this is the constant drive of his being, uh, of his being from which he even, uh, in which even we as believers are not free from this temptation. Uh, we have to fight against it constantly. Um, we don't like God telling us what to do frequently. That's what we call sin. Um, uh, as I like to say, in order to sin, even the believer has to become an atheist, at least for a moment. We have to get God out of the room or pretend that he doesn't exist. Um, man sees himself not as a creature, but as a God, not as dependent, but as independent or autonomous. Autonomous uh, means self-law. I make the rules. Um, the only true interpretation of any fact, including man, in terms, therefore, of God the creator and providence, uh, is in terms of God, who is the creator and providential controller. So the orthodox Christian position, as upheld by uh, consistent Calvinism, is that God is the creator and therefore he is the interpreter. God made this world. He made you. He made me. He made everything in it. And he is in control of it. Therefore, he is the only proper interpreter of it. Uh, so therefore, the only possible point of origin or departure is the triune God and the infallible scriptures. When men reject God, they are at the same time virtually rejecting the creator's interpretation 
and purpose for their lives and for all creation. We're going to see deism uh, later in this talk make an attempt. Uh, well, we want to keep God as the creator, but we, we don't want him messing with the affairs of men. Uh, he's, he's off there somewhere. He's not interested in us. That God may be acceptable. As Van Til has pointed out, if we say that the natural man can truly know God, uh, can't truly know God, then we must also say that he can't truly know the flowers of the field. Instead of his starting point, method, and conclusion, man takes for granted his own ultimacy. So starting with God, he starts with himself. He insists on being his own God, his own interpreter, and as a result, he misinterprets all things. He misinterprets himself, the flowers of the field, and Almighty God, because he has a wrong starting place, wrong authority. Man's sin is his desire to be his own God, determining on his own authority what is good and what is evil. He accordingly suppresses the truth concerning God himself and the world in order to buttress himself in in his rebellion. So, authoritative knowledge of any one fact, we talked about this last night, requires authoritative knowledge of all the facts. You know that, right? You thought you've known something and then you read, read another article and you go, oh, I didn't know that because I was wrong about that. Or I have to adjust. Science does that all the time, right? What? Oh, well, it's true, but even then, I, I'll guarantee you uh, in a year there'll be things that they're asserting now. Wasn't it just a year ago they told us nobody needed a mask? And it wasn't just somebody. It was Fauci. It was the Surgeon General. I heard them. And here we are when three months later, everybody's got to have one. Now, then you got to have two or three. That's right. <laughs> we, that's right. We, well, they, the problem, of course, they say we didn't need any. And so this, this has been a moving target all the time. Trying, It's like the emperor's new clothes, right? <laughs> you got to always maintain the posture of we have this. We, we know what we're talking about. We are the experts. But the reality is, it is a constantly moving target, and it's not like it takes 100 years for the target to move. It takes about 100 minutes before it moves, if, if that. That's right. It doesn't know where it's going, so, uh, and it doesn't know where it started. So that's why it doesn't know where it's going. Um, so finite man is incapable of such knowledge in himself. We've talked about that, the problem of evil. We know almost nothing about everything. Uh, Van Til says, The existence of the triune God and the infallible authority of Scripture are the necessary starting points for knowing the truth of any fact whatsoever. In other words, God, who knows everything about everything, past, present, and future, and all its proper relations, must tell us some of the things he knows. He couldn't tell us everything he knows. Why? We don't have the capacity. I'm a pea brain, if that. Now, Stephen Wright, the comedian, said, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? Um, well, it's that way with knowledge. But we can know some things, and we can know some things with certainty if we are told those things by someone who does know all things, past, present, future, and in all their relations. That's why Scripture is necessary. It's essential. The Bible, again from Van Til, the Bible is thought of as authoritative on everything of which it speaks. Moreover, it speaks of everything. We do not mean that it speaks of football games, of atoms, etc., directly, but we do mean that it speaks of everything either directly or by implication. It tells us not only of Christ and his work, but it also tells us who God is and where the universe about us has come from. So authority is the power to determine, adjudicate, rule, or otherwise settle issues of disputes, jurisdiction, the right to control or command, a person or body of persons in whom authority is vested, uh, such as a governmental body. We talk about uh, a husband's authority or, a gover or the gover government's authority. 
There are authorities, but we're going to see, again, the Scriptures tell us what? Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So all those are delegated authorities. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So there are other authorities in our lives, but they're they are uh, subsidiaries. They are uh, underneath the ultimate authority of God. They are accountable to Him. So, again, drawing from Rush Dooney, man doesn't establish authority. He acknowledges it. Uh, man wants to acknowledge only that authority which he himself establishes uh, at the least, um, or at least gives consent to. I'll let you be the authority over me. I mean, think about it. You might do that if you took a job somewhere and you say, well, I'm going to voluntarily take a job here and so-and-so is going to be my boss. I recognize that when I take... Now, before I take the job, he's not my boss, but I can voluntarily decide to take the job and then I realize I have to do what the boss says. But I've acknowledged that I'm the one that's made that decision. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called God in the Dock. Um, you know, we talk in our legal system about something being on the docket in the court. Uh, so basically, that's who's on trial. So the, the and, and I don't know how this is in other places, but you've seen this in movies or whatever where there's a little box, cage-looking thing. Uh, so the person on trial uh, comes and stands there while they're being judged. They're in the dock. And so... Lewis says, we want to put God in the dock and see if we'll let him be God. And if he'll answer all of our questions satisfactorily, we will be the judge and jury of whether he can be God. And, of course, the Bible says God's not going to do that. He's the judge, and we're in the dock. If we get this backwards is where all the problems begin. Um, uh, All other authority is offensive to man's sense of autonomy or self-law and ultimacy. That's why last night I was talking about always start a conversation with unbelievers or get to it pretty quick. What's your ultimate authority? Everybody has one, whether they've thought about it or acknowledged it or can name it. That's what we want to do is press them to name it and to think about it. So as a result, the claims of Scripture are particularly offensive to the natural man because so much is involved in the admission of their truth. To recognize the claims of Scripture is to accept creaturehood and the fact of the fall. Again, Van Til's pointed out that the concept of the infallible word involves and requires the idea of God's complete control over history. This means that God is self-contained and ultimate, controlling all reality with all reality, revelational of him. Everything points to him. Uh, Van Til has a little booklet called Why I Believe in God. And he says, basically, you can start with any fact. In fact, in that little booklet, he talks about a broken window and how a broken window is evidence of the existence of God. And you'd have to read it. I don't recall how to articulate all of it. But any fact, he says, now the unbeliever is going to argue that fact from a different angle. Um, But um, so to accept fully the concept of the infallible word is to claim all facts for God and to insist that reality can only be interpreted in terms of him and his word. This runs counter to the natural man's claim, what? To be the point of reference and the source of ultimate interpretation and factuality. Explain yourself to me. Let me hear what you have to say, and I'll decide whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. I'm my own ultimate authority. Um, And so... um, This is a sin, the sin of man, which makes Scripture necessary. So Scripture speaks to man with authority and with sufficiency, that is, as a completed word. It speaks with clarity and simplicity, telling man who he is, what the nature of sin is, what his remedy is, and where it's to be found. The attributes of Scripture are thus... um, What did you say they were? Uh, You said you had an acronym for that. What was that? SNAP? 
that's exactly what I had right here. So that's why I called on you. <laughs> I have it in a little different order. So give me the order you got to match your acronym. What was the first one? Uh, sufficiency, necessity, authority, and who knows what perspicuity is other than hard to say. Okay, Roy. Clarity. That's why they use a word that's not so clear. <laughs> yeah. So all this of a Christian must boldly affirm without any hesitancy. We've talked about this last night. We need to resolve right now. We're not embarrassed about the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. The Bible is true. The Bible is authoritative. It is necessary and sufficient. And we do this without hesitancy with regard to, the, for example, people say, well, that's just circular reasoning. How do you know that? Well, the Bible says it's the Word of God. Well, that's circular reasoning, right? Uh, again, Van Til, he's often clever, but he says, uh, you know, the only alternative to uh, circular reasoning is reasoning in a vicious circle. Um, he says the only alternative circular reasoning as engaged in by Christians uh, no matter on what point they speak, is that of reasoning on the basis of isolated facts and isolated minds with the result that there is no possibility of reasoning at all. Unless as sinners we have an absolutely inspired Bible, we have no absolute God interpreting reality for us, and unless we have an absolute God interpreting reality for us, there is no interpretation at all. We're just, think about that. You're just a little speck in the universe of facts trying to reason your way in the midst of all this. It's impossible. You're, you can't do it. It's not at all possible. All authority and knowledge are at stake in the doctrine of the infallible word. There can only be one final reference point in predication. If man is taken to be this final reference point, his environment becomes dependent upon him, and any other personality that may exist is not more ultimate than he is. So if I'm my own ultimate authority, then guess what? So are you. Your own ultimate authority, and so are you, and you, and you, and you. So who's to say? So then what does it become a matter of? Power. And so he, the more power, uh, then you get to, so I'm, I'm to say, I've got the gun and you don't. I've got the bomb and you don't. I've got the media and you don't. We can define truth. Is that happening? <laughs> like all the time, every day? Absolutely. We've got a world full of little demigods Except that none of them think they're little gods. They all think they're God. And uh, so therefore, uh, there is no God on whom this person can feel himself dependent. Um, he is his own God. Neither can any uh, refuge from the authority of Scripture be found in natural theology or what's called common grace. So these two areas are frequently pointed to as though an independent area of authority or witness exists. But all creation gives a common witness to the triune God. All creation is revelational of him. Man finds himself confronted with one resounding witness in all heaven and earth. Even in himself, he's confronted with God. We're made in his image. There's no escape. Precisely because the world... This is a world in which, which is revelational of God. And because common grace is real, the authority of Scripture is inescapable and binding. And again, Van Til summarizes cogently, only in a universe that is unified by the plan of God can there be a once-for-all and finished act of redemption affecting the whole race of men. And only on the basis of a world in which every fact testifies of God can there be a word of God that testifies of itself as interpreting every other fact? Basic to this position is the authority of the infallible word. This is an authority derogatory to man as God. That's why it's hated. But basic to man as man. 
So think about, we're going to rule out the one answer, the one truth, and then try to find the answer after that. I think an example that just pops in my mind, because we just thought about this with the crucifixion and Easter. Jesus is the one true man, right? He's he's, He's the perfect man. And he, he, here he is, and what does the world do with him? They kill him. We don't want that. We want anything but that. So that's the world's answer to Christ, to God himself, and that means that's also the world's answer to God's word. Again, Psalm 2 is a great example of the leaders, the, the judges of the earth have gathered together and said, let's break these bonds, meaning the word of God. We don't want to be told what to do. We're kings. We're judges. We can do this. We, we don't need anybody putting restrictions on us. We want absolute power. So uh, this is an authority, again, derogatory to man. It's destructive of, re- uh, of reason as God but determinative of reason as reason. In other words, without it, we can't truly reason. We can't come to the truth because it's the foundation that we have to have in order to come to the truth. Reason is a tool. It's a gift of God to be used in the context of who we are and who he is in the world that he made. And if we try to put him out of the world, we try to change the creation into something we worship instead of something that is our, I think, I don't know if it was Chesterton, somebody said, uh, nature is not your mother, she is your sister. So get up off your knees and stop worshiping her. Um, God is the creator. So as Van Til states, it, it must be affirmed that a Protestant accepts Scripture to be that which Scripture itself says it is on its own authority. Scripture presents itself as being the only light in terms of which the truth about facts and their relations can be discovered. Perhaps the relationship of the sun to our earth and the objects that constitute it may make this clear. We do not use candles or electric lights in order to discover whether the light and energy of the sun exist. The reverse is the case. We have light in candles and electric light bulbs because of the light and energy of the sun. So we cannot subject the authoritative pronouncements of Scripture about reality to the scrutiny of reason because it is reason itself that leans on the proper function from Scripture, uh, on its proper function from Scripture. There are no doubt objections that occur to one at once when he hears the matter presented so baldly. All the objections that are brought against such a position spring in the last analysis from the assumption that the human person is ultimate and as such should properly act as judge of all claims to authority that are made by anyone. But if man is not autonomous, if he is rather what Scripture says he is, namely a creature of God and a sinner before his face, then man should subordinate his reason to the scriptures and seek in the light of it to interpret his experience. So again, we don't have time to develop all of this, but a lot of things you can read on this subject that I think are helpful. Scripture is self-authenticating. You cannot make sense of the world without it. And again, I just take the example of ethics. Let's take the problem of evil. It is a problem, and we're not going to take time to develop that whole uh, the Odyssey question, but in a in the material world that has no God, what is evil? What? Meaningless. But everybody knows it exists, right? And man, until you say everybody can count, but not everybody can account for accounting, for counting. Uh, so everybody knows there are evil things. Everybody knows that's wrong, right? Yes, but why is it wrong? Not everybody apparently knows that. And if there is no God as presented in Scripture, then that is an empty concept. Um, all right. Matthew seven twenty four through 29. 
Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, Jesus said, and does them, I'll like him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it's founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So all of life is ethical, meaning it's thought of in terms of good and evil, right and wrong, true and false. Day by day, we make decisions on how to act. We form attitudes, cultivate emotions. We set goals for ourselves and try to attain them. We do these things individually as well as in various groups, as our, our family, friends, church, community, occupation, and so forth, the state. All of these contexts, in all these contexts, the kind of people we are, the kind of goals we have, the kind of rules we observe in decision-making are what we call ethical matters. Um, all human behavior and character is subject to appraisal according to moral value. Every one of our attainments, whether they be aims that are fulfilled or character traits that are developed, and every one of our actions, whether they're mental, verbal, or bodily behavior, express an unspoken code of right and wrong. Uh, So there are many moral values which are recommended to us, right? Uh, Numerous implicit codes of right and wrong. We go through every day in the midst of a plurality of ethical viewpoints which are in constant competition with one another. So some people make pleasure their highest value. Others put a premium on health. There are those who say we should watch out for ourselves first of all, and yet others who tell us that we should live to be in service to our neighbor. What we hear in advertisements often conflicts with the values that are endorsed at church. Sometimes the decisions of our employers violate laws that are established by the state. Our friends don't always share the code of behavior that has been fostered by our family. Making ethical decisions, therefore, can be confusing and difficult. Every one of us then needs a moral compass, a guide uh, to guide us through the maze of moral issues and disagreements that confront us every moment of our lives. To put it another way, making moral judgments requires a standard, a standard of ethics. But by what standard? What is your standard? Bonson illustrates this. Have you ever tried to draw a straight line without the aid of a standard to follow, such as a ruler? As good as your line might have seemed initially, when you placed a straight edge up to it, the line was obviously crooked. Or have you ever tried to determine an exact measurement of something by simple eyeball inspection? As close as you may have come by guessing, the only way to be sure and accurate was to use a proper standard of measurement, such as a yardstick. And if we're going to be able to determine what kinds of persons, actions, and attitudes are morally good, then we will need a standard here as well. Otherwise, we will lead crooked lives and make inaccurate evaluations. And so what should our ethical standard be? What yardstick should we use in making decisions, cultivating attitudes, or setting goals for ourselves and the groups in which we move? How does one know and test what is right or wrong? Now, that's a question we're going to always ask, not only of ourselves, but whoever we're talking with. How do you know? Why are you outraged about global warming? Or whatever. So we need yardsticks for civilization. Um, In ancient Greece and Rome, uh, the city-state was taken as the ultimate authority and the yardstick in ethics. Caesar was lord over all when moral questions were raised. And uh, over against the totalitarian, divinized state, uh, you know, state has become God, the early church proclaimed the lordship of Jesus Christ. And thus, the battle 
ensued. Who is Lord? Who is ultimate? So the ruling authorities in Romans 13.1 were told that all authority in heaven and earth resided in the resurrected Messiah. How much? All of it. Where? In heaven? Oh, okay. And on earth. Oh, that's not okay. <laughs> we, now you're impinging on my turf. So there's the conflict. And so um, that's why those who stand in opposition to the beast uh, in Revelation 13, uh, according to John, uh, he, he portrays the state as the beast, requiring that his own name be written on the men's foreheads and hands, thereby symbolizing the state's law had replaced God's law, which uh, was to be written on the forehead and the hand. This is why those who stand in opposition to the beast are described as, in Revelation 14, 1 and 12, those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So God's people insist that the state does not have ultimate ethical authority for God's word is the supreme standard of right and wrong. We must obey God rather than man. We want to be good citizens. We want to submit everywhere we can, every place that that authority is in uh, cooperation with or consistent with the authority of God. But when they're in conflict, we must obey God rather than men. So we're not going to abort our children. We're not going to do all kinds of things the state says to do. Now, well, you might go to jail. Well, then hmm, it seemed like the apostle spent a fair amount of time there. You might die. Quite a few Christians have died uh, because of this. Um, the medieval church, however, came to foster two yardstick ethics, two yardsticks for ethics. A standard for religious ethics found in the Bible and a standard for natural ethics found in man's reason as it examined the world. Of course, that left some ethical decisions or evaluations independent of the Word of God. Those religious issues which remained under the umbrella of the Bible were ultimately decided by the Pope. Um, thus, the medieval world was ripe for tyranny in both the secular state and the despotic church. Over against this, the reformers challenged the traditions of men and reasserted the full authority of God's word, declaring sola scriptura and tota scriptura, that is, only scripture and all of scripture. The final standard of faith and practice, the yardstick of all of life, personal as well as social, was the Bible. That's why the Puritans strove to let God's word form their lifestyle and regulate their behavior in every sphere of human endeavor, not just the church, but work, society, so forth. Because a holy God required them to be holy in all their conduct, 1 Peter 1.15. And the standard of holy living was found in God's holy law, Romans 7.12. Accordingly, the Puritans even took God's law as their yardstick for civil laws, in the new land to which they eventually came, and we have enjoyed the fruits of their godly venture in this country for three centuries. We still have capital that we're living on, and we're losing it, but we're still benefiting. The attitude of the Reformers and Puritans is nicely summarized in Robert Paul's painting, which hangs in the Supreme Court building uh, in, in Switzerland. It's entitled, Justice Instructing the Judges. And it portrays justice pointing her sword at a book labeled the law of God. Justice is blindfolded and she's standing there with a sword that's pointing to a book that has the words on it, the law of God. Now, nevertheless, with the coming of this alleged enlightenment, you've heard of the enlightenment. That's nothing like a misnomer. Um, the yardstick of ethics progressively shifted from the Bible to human laws fostered, fostered by independent reason and experience. We don't need God. We can figure this out on our own. Um, a neutral or critical attitude toward the inspired scriptures undermined its recognized authority over all life, and modern ethics has come to be characterized by an autonomous spirit, an attitude of self-law. Um, 
Bishop Butler located it in man's conscience, Kant in man's reason, and Hegel in the absolute state. So they're still hunting around to find, you know, where, where the origin is, where the base is. It's anywhere but the Word of God. So the one thing shared by all schools of modern ethics is an antipathy to taking moral direction from the Bible. That's the one place we're not going to get it. Um, So today, vast numbers of theologians have thrown away the biblical yardstick of ethics and have substituted something else for it. The outcome has been the loss of any respectable, vigorous, reforming ethic in in the contemporary church. Thus saith the Lord has been replaced with, well, it seems to me. And so the Bible no longer directs all of life because its requirements are deemed stifling and are viewed, as, are viewed in advance as outdated and unreasonable. So we've got our version of cancel culture here. We don't need the Bible. It's backwards, outdated, antiquated. So men repudiate the interference in their lives represented by God's commandments. Um, So the attitude of lawlessness unites all men because of their sin. So there's this idea, you do what you want to do, and I'll I'll approve of that as long as we have this deal, is you've got to approve of what I want to do. Deal? Why don't we just all approve of each other? And so it becomes a mutual admiration society, but a mutual destruction society. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you room to be who you want to be, define yourself however you want to define yourself, but you have to give me the same room. And if anybody, you know, in the name of tolerance, in the name of compassion, in the name of love, love wins, right? Um, in the name of tolerance, Everybody does what is right in his own eyes, except Christians. We don't tolerate you. That's not acceptable. That's the one thing not acceptable. We'll let Jesus have a place at the table as long as he's one among thousands. But if he makes any claim to being the authority over the table, then he's not accepted at all. Jesus was compassionate, but he was not tolerant. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, you can reject that, but, you, but there's no middle ground. There's no compromise there. It's either You're either all in or not. The entire Bible is the standard for today. God expects us to submit to his every word, not pick and choose the ones which are agreeable to our preconceived conditions and opinions. The Bible wasn't written in such a way that it devotes separate sections. Uh, We mentioned this last night, and we'll skip over that. Um, So we need the whole Bible in order to get the whole ethic because there's not a chapter on um, business practices. It's scattered all over. So we need to, to take in all of the Bible in order to understand how, remember, it either applies directly or indirectly, and there's a lot of indirectly, indirect application. Um, let me see here, because we're about out of time again. So it's easy to see, then, that everything the Bible teaches from Genesis to Revelation is authoritative and carries ethical implications with it. There is no word from God which fails to tell us in some way what we're to believe about him and and what duty he requires of us. Paul put it this way, 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we disregard any portion of the Bible we will, to that extent, fail to be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Um, If we ignore certain requirements laid down by the Lord in the Bible, our instruction in righteousness will be incomplete. Paul says that every single scripture is profitable for ethical living. Every verse gives us direction on how we should live. The entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is our ethical yardstick 
uh, for every part of it is authoritative is the authoritative word. Let me just say something quickly because what we've had in in the last century and a half in dispensationalism is this the, the idea of a divided Bible that the New Testament replaced the Old Testament. So all that old stuff is may have some historical use, but it's certainly not equal to what we have in the New. The New. So oftentimes, where in the New Testament does it say to do that? As though what was in the Old. The God of the Old Testament is thought of as, in one way, perhaps harsh, uh, and the God of the New Testament is more gentle. And and, uh, and so we get this dichotomy that's not in the Bible. Uh, some of you guys remember, I know David does, I don't know who else was there when Steve Schlissel was there. You remember tearing that middle page out of the Bible when we were at SFA? Uh, well, that was the doll, too, but he took that middle page that is the, you know, says New Testament, uh, just that this is not inspired. <laughs> and he tore that out. Now, this is the, is the Word of God. Uh, now, does the New Testament have things to say about the Old Testament? Does the New Testament say that the work of Jesus has caused certain things in the Old Testament to become obsolete? Absolutely. But not everything. And, and when we say obsolete, uh, so for example, uh, the work of Jesus does away with the need for animal sacrifices, but it doesn't do away with the need for a sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. It does away with the need of the Levitical priesthood, but it doesn't do away with the need for a priesthood because Jesus is our high priest. And by the way, we are priests. And by the way, we are sacrifices. And by the way, it does away with the need for the temple or the tabernacle because Jesus is our tabernacle and we also are temples of the Holy Spirit. So, it, so you see, the New Testament gives an interpretation. It says those things were tutors to lead us to Christ. And now that you've graduated elementary school, you don't need those things anymore because you have the substance. So that's why we need the whole Bible, though, because thou shalt not steal still applies, still true. It's an eternal truth. The ethical, the equity of the Old Testament law is still in force. Uh, we don't have time. We, maybe in some discussion we can flesh some of this out. This is a huge topic, but I just wanted to emphasize that. So how do we know that? How do we know that the Old Testament still is applicable to New Testament Christians? Well, how about we just read the New Testament and see what it says? Acts 17.11. These Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they... Remember, they were hearing the Apostle Paul teach. And they said, it says, they received my word with all eagerness of heart. And they did what? They searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You got the picture? Apostle Paul is speaking. We want to know if what he's telling us is true. So we're going to get our Bibles out and search them to see what it says, to see if what he's saying is consistent with what it said. And what was their Bible? The Old Testament. There was no New Testament. Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture inspired by God. What Scripture? There wasn't a New Testament when that was written. Now, as as the New Testament becomes recognized as Scripture, of course that verse applies. But when Paul wrote it, there wasn't a, there wasn't a New Testament. I think when Paul's speaking in Berea, it wasn't necessarily. They recognized him as a possible, but the fact that they were still going back to their Bibles, I mean, I, I think what we see is over the first couple of centuries, these things get established more firmly. If a letter, there are all kind of uh, false letters that were circulating. So the church was being careful, and that's why they, the church comes to recognize we need to dis- make determinations under the authority, sovereignty of God and the direction of God of which things are the Bible and which things aren't. So in other words, if you just had a letter and it said this is, you know, from Paul, um, you better make sure it's consistent with the Word of God first. That'd be one test, right? And then other things, that's another subject for another day, the canonization of Scripture. But um, all I'm saying is before we had the New Testament, and indeed the apostles and Jesus, Jesus more than anybody, uh, regularly quotes from and cites the Old Testament as authoritative. Uh, he, he quotes Deuteronomy, I think, more than anything. And 
Genesis, and uh, so there's all kinds of, so it, we were talking about this last night with somebody, Adam and Eve, were they literal uh, human beings? How do we know? I think you brought that up, didn't you? Um, well, Jesus said so. He's God. Yes. That's, I'm preaching on that Sunday, so don't, don't steal my thunder. <laughs> and in fact, we'll go ahead and preview that. Roy brought it up. He's right. Jesus is going to say to them, I'm going to open up to you all the scripture because all of what Moses and the prophet said was about me. All of it. What? <laughs> Explain. <laughs> We, we need to hear more. And, and, uh, and suddenly we realize that the New Testament enables us to go back and read the Old Testament in a whole new way. It interprets that. All right, we're out of time. Um, let me just close with um, the Great Commission. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. What's that a reference to? Scripture. The Word of God. That's the authority. All authority is given to him. Take what I've said and go teach the nations. Instruct them in the Word of God. Resolve, men, if you haven't, hopefully you have, but just with a fresh resolve, the Bible is my standard. It is the authority of my life, even when I don't like it. Maybe especially when I don't like it. How about when you don't understand it? How about you, as a boss of mine used to say, when I say jump, uh, you ask how high on the way up. Um, you can ask for clarification, you can pray, you can study, you can seek further and further to understand. You should, and you will, and you'll grow. But you don't wait to under, you don't understand and before you, you don't say, I've got to understand it before I do it. Do it, and then probably you'll understand it. I believe, right, I, 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 I obey in order to, how's that work? I got that back, uh, I believe in order to understand. I don't understand in order to believe. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of it, Old and New Testament. We thank you that it's authoritative. We thank you that it's powerful. We thank you that you've revealed it to us through the apostles and prophets, that you, in your kind providence, preserved it through the ages, that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. We thank you that you've given us Bibles. We thank you that you've given us a community of believers to, to live in, to, that we might know this word, be instructed in it, speak it to one another, sing it to one another, and live it before one another. Help us, Lord, to take a firm stand before the world with wisdom, with grace, making the word of God lovely by showing the world what it does. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, let's